Welcome to episode 172 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host, Dirk Niemeyer. Greetings, John. This week on the podcast, we're going to discuss the strange but exciting world of quantum computing. Quantum computers operate on an atomic level to harness the power of quantum mechanics to perform processing tasks that are much more rapid uh, than those of computers designed using classical physics. They have the potential to perform calculations much, much faster than our silicon-based supercomputers of today, up to 100 million times faster, in fact. Research in quantum computing has, up until recently, been largely theoretical, uh, with practical technology needed to achieve it beyond reach. But now, both Google and D-Wave, a Canadian company, have made some significant progress in bringing uh, quantum computing to life. Uh, D-Wave has a commercial quantum computer, but it's not a universal quantum computer. it's uh, suitable for solving certain kinds of computational problems around optimization, but uh, that's the, the limit of its capabilities. So will there be a coming revolution in computing power? Will quantum computers one day replace our silicon-based computing devices? That's uh, some of the stuff that, that I think would be interesting to explore today, Dirk. Sure. So I'm no expert on quantum computing. Perhaps you are and can, can um, help myself and the listeners better understand what we're talking about. Well, I can talk about how it works uh, just, you know, based on my limited understanding. Uh, so today's computers work by manipulating bits that exist in uh, one of two states. You know, as you know, it's zero or one. Whereas quantum computers, uh, on the other hand, they're not limited to these two states. They encode information as qubits, which are uh, quantum bits, which can exist in in superpositions. So they can be both zero and one at the same time. Now, the quantum mechanics that make that happen are as confusing to me as I think they're probably as you know confusing to most lay people. Um, but uh, because quantum computing contain contain these uh, multiple states simultaneously, uh, it has this potential to be millions of times more powerful than, uh, than today's supercomputers. So, so Google is in the process of building this uh, so-called universal quantum computer uh, that it hopes will usher in you know, a new era and, and making this technology not just lab and research base, uh, but sort of moving Uh, out of the labs and into the commercial sphere. Um, And what's exciting is that Google's universal quantum computer could could, uh, uh, be revealed or or be finished uh, as early as the end of next year, 2017. So so we're really, you know, sort of waiting with bated breath to see if Google can pull this this off. Um, D-Wave which is um, this Canadian company uh, that has a quantum computer, although, uh, as I said earlier, not of the universal uh, kind, is already selling their computers to uh, researchers and, and to companies like Lockheed Martin. So this is definitely, you know, even if, you know, say it doesn't happen it, in 2017, this is definitely 
where uh, the future of computer uh, computing is is looking. Um, and what's really startling is how this technology might intersect with the technologies that we talk about all the time on the show. So if you can imagine, um, uh, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning, uh, you know, accelerated by quantum computing. So, so we're we're talking about jumps of you know millions of times, which which means that the advances will happen all that much more quickly. Or or talk about the the, the uh, genomics uh, research that we discuss all the time. Uh, that being accelerated, uh, you know, millions of times. Uh, so I think it's really in this intersection of of quantum computing and some of the other areas of uh, research and technology where this becomes ex exceptionally powerful. Yeah, yeah, I, I, you know, it's, it, that's, that's right, um, that's right. And, you know, it's, it's really, um, it, it's really a microcosm of the shift that has happened in physics over the last 120 years, basically, which, which is to say that, um, for ever since the 17th century, you know, the Newtonian mechanics, classical mechanics, ruled the scientist's notion of how the world worked. Um, you know, that changed with atomic, um, or even before atomic, you know, the sort of radiation um, and things that were smaller than, than we realized. And um, that was, you know, that was something that was sort of developed to get into quantum mechanics related to quantum computing about 100 years ago. This is actually something I have a fair bit of knowledge on because, as you know, I've been um, doing a game for the family of um, Dr. Albert Einstein. Yes, that's recently. right. And so I've, I've researched stuff uh, quite, quite a bit. Um, and, you know, a lot of it comes out of, um, you know, the work that was done in France with Marie Curie and um, her husband and, and a third fellow, I'm going to forget his name off the top of my head, who was actually the first um, to, to find some of that stuff, um, but was really, you know, was really brought to life um, in part by Dr. Einstein with his um, light quanta. Um, and Max Planck is often um, sort of most associated with with quantum mechanics, along with Niels Bohr, who um, really a little bit a little bit later, maybe in the the teens, um, was was publishing publishing some of the key the key things on the science. And I'm going a little bit away from computing here, but I find the history interesting. So perhaps other people will as as well. Um, you know, quantum mechanics and the theory of relativity are basically competing theories to explain um, explain all of this stuff, all of the stuff that makes you know Newtonian mechanics um, you know no longer viable or or correct. And to this day, they both are um, appear to be true and correct. And it appears that they should not be able to coexist with each other from a theoretical perspective. That's right. Um, uh, so it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating, but it's also, you know, just the, the recentness of it. So, um, you know, again, these are things that are, you know, not, not proven to a certain degree. And I mean, even the whole premise of both seem correct and both theoretically can't coexist um, makes it all seem sort of ridiculous. And yet, you know, here we have quantum computing, which seems viable and is certainly working um, within the model of quantum mechanics. But this is all based on science that is, you know, barely over a century old from the theoretical perspective and now is becoming 
realized with um, computers that are just remarkably more powerful than what we've been enjoying to this point. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm glad you you raised some of the historical aspects uh, uh, to this because uh, I'm actually in in the midst of reading. Uh, I think it's called Life on the Edge about quantum biology, just how some biological systems have uh, uh, quantum uh, factors involved in in the way they operate. Uh, and and the example that the author digs into most is is that of uh, birds being able to detect the uh, the magnetic field of the Earth when they are migrating. Um, so. There's this interesting overlay of the world that we're very familiar with, uh, with this you know strange uh, quantum mechanical world, and and with quantum computing, we're finding that we can take advantage of the rule sets that govern uh, quantum mechanics without fully understanding, uh, or or at least uh, for for the average person, not fully understanding uh, what the implications are of these computers. And and suffice it to say, that's probably true of of the silicon-based computing that we have today. We understand the basics of how it works, but uh, by no means do we, um, at least for myself, understand you know the depths of the science. Uh, nonetheless, the uh, Moore's law, which has sort of dictated the pace of computing and, and the ways in which um, our technologies have advanced over the past uh, several decades is now uh, likely to, you know, encounter with, with quantum computing. I don't know if there's going to be, uh, you know, a corollary to Moore's law uh, for, for quantum computing where, where uh, in, as opposed to, you know, doubling in power ever, every 18 months, all of a sudden uh, this, this amount of computing power increases a million fold. Um, but I don't think that we can truly appreciate the, the, the numbers, um, you know, a million times as fast. That that is that is something that uh, I, I have trouble grasping. And and really, the implications for uh, something like artificial intelligence, which, you know, fundamentally based on on learning systems, all of a sudden computers are going to be able to learn what a million times faster. Um, this is by no means happening tomorrow, of course, uh, but but what does what does that mean? What does that mean for any of the trends that we're seeing? Uh, uh, you know, all the all the way down to society, uh, societal acceptance of uh, this this kind of rapid innovation. I don't know, um, but the the fact remains we're you know potentially 18 months out from a, a universal. Uh, quantum computer, which which means that, uh, frankly, we're we're sitting right on the edge of what might be, you know, one of the more fantastic uh, scientific breakthroughs of of this or any century. Wow, one of the m most fantastic scientific breakthroughs of this or any century. I, I don't know if that's true or not. Um, <laughs> maybe it is. I, I don't know, but that's a huge statement. Um, I, you know, in, in terms of short term, how will this? How will this impact stuff? Um, AI is the thing that um, you know is is most likely to be impacted as the computer becomes a lot more more powerful and full of potential. Um, as scientists and engineers figure out new and innovative ways to translate AI um, 
into this into this framework, it, it does have the potential to be extraordinarily more powerful than than what we've had up until this point. I mean, beyond that, um, I mean, a lot of it is just theoretical, which is to say that um, the 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 potential power of quantum computers is so superior to what we're accustomed to today. Um, I think a lot of the things that that happen are things that will um, just surprise us and and um, be often probably unintended consequences of um, you know of the better technology. Yeah, I do think. I mean, to sort of dial back my breathless enthusiasm, right? There, there's always a period of like this. This is as much proof of concept as uh, uh, you know as anything else. Google's um, uh, forthcoming um, universal quantum computer is is likely to be just sort of the first initial step in in what's uh, bound to be sort of a, a long. Uh, journey to get these computers commercialized, uh, and especially if if you think about the uh, powerful computing that will get applied to you know perhaps research or governmental concerns first before um, yeah. uh, before making its way to the private sector. So by no, by no means am I expecting that at the end of 2017 our our uh, our day to day computing is going to get uh, a million times faster. Uh, but it does make you think about sort of those initial uh, rockets uh, that, you know, that, that went to the moon um, and, and how the space program has progressed since then, sort of seeing this as, as, as sort of an early, early stage rocket um, that, is, that is going to have a lot of, you know, excellent results uh, down the road and, and may, in fact, you know, enable us to do things that, that we can only dream of today. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll say this, uh, your, your call that Google was, you know, sort of overtaking a lot of its technological competitors um, and was really the most exciting tech company uh, of today, I, I think has has proven out to be correct. Um, I'm sure Google has, um, you know, been heading down this path for a long time, but just with this uh, particular set of news, really solidifies for me that that Google or Alphabet, I guess they are now, uh, is really the uh, the private company to watch in the tech space. No question. And, and and years ago, when I when I made that prediction, I urged our listeners to buy stock. And if you've looked at the stock price since then, you've made a killing if you listen to me. And <laughs> if you didn't, I think it's still even a good time to buy now, uh, despite the price being uh, very inflated, relatively speaking. Yeah, Google's going down all sorts of interesting paths, um, uh, and and we cover them a lot on the show. Anyway, I'm I'm going to be anxious to see how. Uh, this this turns out uh, over the next uh, couple of years to see if Google can make this achievement happen. Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to thedigitallife.com, that's just one L in the digital life, and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everybody, so it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening, or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. You can find The Digital Life on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and Google Play.
And if you want to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by Involution Studios, which you can check out at GoInvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. Dirk? You can follow me on Twitter at D Niemeyer. That's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. And thanks so much for listening. So that's it for episode 172 of The Digital Life. For Dirk Neumeyer, I'm John Follett, and I'll see you next time. Yeah.